Mark chapter 8. I want to say as you turn to it that we are one step away from the pinnacle, the climax, the sweet spot in the Gospel of Mark. Um, we're one passage away from the, the pictures of the, the question and answer that is in the banner at the front of our sanctuary where the disciples are asked by Jesus, okay, what do you say? Who do you say that I am? And they respond, and Peter speaks for them and says, you're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. We're one step away from that, okay? And we've been driving toward it, but as we're going to see today, the disciples are not there yet. They don't get it. And there's a sense of urgency in the voice of Jesus as he is nearing this time when they need to start getting it because pretty soon he's going to be leaving this earth and leaving everything in the hands of these 12 men that he has been discipling and working with. So that is the, the, the background or the essence of what we're looking at this morning. And we turn to Mark chapter 8. Would you stand with me as we listen to God's word? <clears throat> During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, some, because some have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground, and when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied, and afterward the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present, and having sent them away, he got into the boat with the disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. And to test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply. And he said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. And then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had left with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? May God bless his word. You may be seated. <clears throat> In Mark's gospel, the first half of the gospel of Mark, Mark is very intent on showing us that the disciples did not understand the purpose of Jesus' life on earth. And they did not understand who he was, who he is. 
Even though demons understood who he was and others would understand, they still were hard-hearted. And it's in the next chapter, in the next end of chapter 8, that we're going to see that they finally get it. But then the second half of the Gospel of Mark is consumed with them understanding, so what is this Messiahship all about? And, and they're not able to consume the idea that it's about him dying on a cross and being raised to new life for the sins of the world. And so there's, a, there's a very much an agenda on the first half of Mark and in a second agenda, agenda on the second half of the Gospel of Mark. For this reason, we, we must realize that as we are, are, are reading through the Gospel of Mark, he never sets aside his disciple-making hat. He's always the disciple-maker. I mean, we, we might, Mark takes us to different parts of Palestine, all over that part of the world, and he shows us Jesus healing and teaching and casting out evil spirits and stuff. And yet, all the time, he, every so often, like a film producer, he, he's on the scene, the main event, the feeding of the 4,000, but then all of a sudden, it'll swing back to the disciples and they'll say, I wonder what's going on with them. Because Jesus is always concerned about what's going on in the twelve. Because he's going to be leaving the earth soon and everything is going to be in their hands. His whole mission. And so we need to understand one of the primary lessons that I want you to hear and apply to your own life as we go through the text today is that God is always doing more than what we see him doing. Okay? God is always doing more than what we see him doing. We're going to look at some stories today in this text that are like bookends to the scripture that we just read. And the stories that take place in the physical realm are visible. A, a deaf man having ear, hearing and a blind man being given sight. But what was really taking place was Jesus doing a work of spiritual hearing and spiritual sight in the apostles, the twelve. He has never put aside his disciple-making priority, though he might be doing all kinds of other things. God also, in the same way, is at work in your life, in your family, in your situation, and you see him visibly physically doing things, but you need to ask the question of faith. What is underneath that? What is he doing? What is he saying to me, to my family? And so with that as an introduction, let's take, uh, if you have your green insert, you'll notice the first point in the message has to do with the ministry of Jesus and its scope. And another very important element in Mark's gospel is is the fact that there's relevance for Jesus' ministry, not just for the house of Israel and the Jewish nation, but also for all the other nations of the earth. And so Jesus in Mark is, is being portrayed as one who's very relevant for the Roman soldier, for the Greeks, for the pagan world. You'll notice in Mark's gospel there's very, very few Old Testament citations because the Greek world didn't care much about the Old Testament. It wouldn't have meant much to them. But, but Mark is concerned that the whole world get the message of the gospel of who Jesus is. And so, for this reason, the gospels, and Mark, Mark as well as Matthew, but they record two miraculous feedings of the multitude. 
One is distinctly for the Jewish people, the feeding of the 5,000, and one is distinctly for the Gentiles, the feeding of the 4,000. The first one is in chapter 6. We looked at it a few weeks ago. The second one is in the text today in chapter 8. I'd like you to take your Bibles, just have your finger in both pages, as I want to show you that there's a stark similarity between both of these feedings, so much so that some would try to even say there was only one that happened, but it's not true. Historically, both biblically and other ways, there's, there's been two feedings that take place, and Jesus knew why he was feeding the 5,000 and why he was feeding the 4,000. Let's look at that today. <clears throat> First of all, notice that Mark is very careful for the reader to identify where Jesus is. Last week, Doug clarified to us as he preached that this Gentile excursion ministry might have taken months to complete. Mark is very careful to say that he's in the vicinity of Tyre in chapter 7, verse 24. Sidon and the Decapolis, the ten cities. This is the, the Gentile territory, okay? And so Jesus is there when he feeds the 4,000. And if you'll notice in, in, the, in the similarities, both miracles occur in a remote place, chapter 6 and chapter 8. Both recur in a, in a, occur in a remote place where a crowd has been listening to Jesus teach. In both cases, Jesus has compassion on the people and he wants to feed them. In both cases, he looks to his disciples to do something about this. And in both cases, they don't think about Jesus and his power to maybe do something miraculous. They think about, where are we going to get enough money to pay for all this food in the first situation? And in the second one, they say, where are we going to buy food because we're in a remote place? Where would we go? You know, they're, they're not getting it. They're not understanding Jesus and his power to multiply loaves. In both cases, Jesus asks them how many loaves they have. And in both cases, they tell him how many loaves they have. And uh, in the feeding of the 5,000, there are five loaves and two fish. In the feeding of the 4,000, there are seven loaves and a few small fish. We're going to see later in the message that the fish are almost incidental. The, the loaves are really the focal point of the, of the teaching. And in both cases, he, he looks up and he, he, he thanks the Father for the food. And then in both cases, he begins to break the loaves and the fishes. And in both cases, the disciples take and distribute it to the masses. These are identical. Up to now, we are in stark similarity, okay? In both cases, after the meal, also, the disciples gather the leftovers. There's no one in those crowds, there's no one that's going to go home with a little in their pocket. Like the Israelites in, in Exodus, when the manna came uh, every morning like dew on the ground, nobody could take some of that manna for the next day. All of the disciples gathered what was left over. In the first situation, in the feeding of the 5,000, there was 12 baskets left over, indicative of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 Jewish men that were his apostles. And when we talked about that text, I referred to the fact that Jesus was about to send them across the Sea of Galilee, and here he had packed a little lunch for them, each of them, 12, 12 baskets. The word that is used for basket in chapter 6 is the word kofinos, which has the, the meaning of a small lunch pail-sized basket. Okay, literally, a lunch pail basket. The feeding of the 4,000, there are seven baskets left over for the Gentiles. But this is not the little lunch pail basket, the word that's used in that 
context is spiris, which is actually the meaning of a large man-sized basket. It's actually a hamper. The same word, in fact, is used in Acts chapter 9 and verse 25. You remember the story when Paul, the apostle, is preaching in Damascus, and, and he is, he, someone's going to kill him. Like, he is going to be killed. And his followers take him and put him in a basket, and they lower him outside the wall. Same word. So we're talking about seven big hampers of food, of bread, left over afterwards in the Gentile miracle. And again, in folklore, in Jewish folklore, there were 70 Gentile nations. Seven was a, a number of perfection. Seven hampers, as opposed to 12 little baskets, suggest the abundance of provision. What is Jesus teaching? Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life for the lost house of Israel. I am the seed of Abraham. I am the bread of life for them. But I am also the bread of life in abundance for all people groups, all ethnos, every nation on this earth. And friends, that's, that is what Jesus, I believe, is teaching through, through this miracle. And, uh, and so the first point of the message this morning is underlying the scope of Jesus' ministry, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. That's a phrase that Paul is fond of in Romans chapter 2, verse 9. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, but glory and honor for, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Sounds kind of funny at the end. First for the Jew and then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. Well, the fact is it had to be that way because Abraham, through his seed, came the nation of Israel. And through that was to be a light to the nations. That was God's plan. In, in the covenant of Abraham that Doug referred to last week in Genesis chapter 12, what does God say to Abraham? He says, I will bless you, your seed, and through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. You see, that's... That's the deep river of theology that stands, uh, that flows underneath what we do, friends. That's why we go to Garden Hill. There's an ethnos there that needs Jesus. That's why we go to India. There's a, a people group there we can support and encourage to draw near to Jesus in the midst of the thousands of Hindu gods. That's why we're sending a, tr a team to Bolivia this summer to, to explore if there's something we can do to help the church there strengthen themselves to reach the nations for Jesus Christ. There are two-thirds of, of Bolivia that is indigenous peoples. That's why we have English conversation circles because we know the nations are coming to Canada and we want to be part of the 16 or 17,000 that come to Manitoba. We want to be part of, of showing them that there's friends in Canada. You have need. We want to be part of that. That's why we're involved in other immigrant ministries because we believe that, that underneath it all is the deep theological river that God has on His heart all nations. How can we not have on our heart all nations? And so, 
as followers of Jesus who said in his last words, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We have to go. We have to have them come. We have to be involved and engaged in their lives. The second point of this morning's message has to do with the fact that his means are not just messages and miracles, but messages through miracles. And God uses acts of mercy and compassion not merely as miracles to confirm his Messiahship, but as messages, metaphors, parables to convey a deep, real message to the spiritually dead or drowsy. In concrete terms, we see in this passage two physical healings as bookends. Like I say, Mark uses them as bookends. Two physical healings which have the dual purpose of being also metaphors of spiritual healings. What am I saying? I'm saying it there very concretely. What I'm saying is, I'm saying that it was in the mind of Jesus when he spit on his hand and touched the tongue and the ears of the first man at the end of chapter 7, it was in the mind of Jesus that my apostles are watching me and I want them to understand they're not hearing me. And later on, the second story at the, after the feeding of the 4,000 in chapter 8, when he spits again into the man's eyes, he is trying to say to his apostles who are watching him, I'm about spiritual sight, and you're not seeing. You see, I'm not minimizing, friends, that Jesus had compassion in the moment for that deaf man, mute man, and blind man. But I am saying that God is always doing more than one thing at a time. And that he's always really, really, really concerned about his followers. And so in this passage, and if you take a look in your, in your Bibles now, at the two stories, they're starkingly similar, these two bookends. The first one Doug referred to last week, the deaf and the mute man in the Decapolis. Incidentally, the last time we heard about the Decapolis was in chapter 5, verse 20, when Jesus had healed the demoniac. And he goes out, because Jesus says, go and tell, tell people what the Lord did for you. And he goes to the Decapolis, these ten cities, so that when Jesus goes back to that area, people are saying, oh, that's Jesus. That's the one that set old Fred free, etc. And so a group of people come to him in chapter 7, and, and they bring a man who is not able to hear or talk. And so they do the talking for him, and they say, can you touch him? And Jesus has compassion. And you, you can see the story in chapter 7, 32. Very interesting takes him away from the crowd, puts his fingers in his ears. Can you imagine a... You know, in our situation today, if a doctor did some of these things, we wouldn't think any, anything of it. You know, putting a... What's that little stick he puts in your tongue? You know, and Jesus spits and, and you know, it's, we probably wouldn't want that part. But look at, look at the... It's not an, a simple process here. Puts his fingers in his ears, puts his spit on the man's tongue, looks up to heaven, sighs deeply, and says in Aramaic, be opened. And then the man can actually talk and hear. Surely people were thinking about Isaiah 35 when it says, 
Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And the second story, take a look at it. It's in chapter 8, verse 22. This takes place after the feeding of the 4,000. It's in the territory of Bethsaida, where it's Jewish territory again. The last time we read about Bethsaida was in chapter 6, 45, when the disciples were sent by Jesus to cross the Sea of Galilee to Bethsaida. They never got there. The wind was against them. Now they get to Bethsaida here. And notice the similarities. Jesus, a man is brought to Jesus, okay, by some people. The man is blind. Here also, they beg Jesus. Very strong word. They beg Jesus. Notice chapter 726, 732, and 822. The three times the word is beg. They beg Jesus. Strong word. They beg Jesus. And notice again, Jesus takes the blind man away from the crowd in this situation. And again, notice Jesus uses spit, this time not in his mouth, but in his eyes. And he says to the man, do you see anything? And the first time he says it, he says, no, I, I see people like trees walking around. In other words, he wasn't healed yet. It was a partial healing. His vision was not clear, was not complete yet. And then he's, he puts his hands on him again, and now he sees clearly. So in both of these stories, there's a helplessness and an infirmity of men underlined, the need of others to bring them to Jesus. Their healing is not instant. It's a process. In other cases in the gospel, you know, we've been looking at it. Jesus just says, go home. Your daughter's well. Doesn't have to see the girl. In other cases, he, he just touches somebody and they can hear, they can see. It's not hard. I don't believe for a moment that Jesus didn't get it right the first time here. And so the man is saying, oh, I kind of see trees, and you know, it's kind of blurry. Could you help me out a little further? I don't believe for a moment that it was Jesus changing his methodology and seeing which worked better. I believe that Jesus has done both of these miracles in process form because he's not talking only about physical healing. He is talking about spiritual healing, and spiritual healing in all of our lives is generally process. Right? We all have, we're all on a journey. We're all being made whole. And that's what Jesus is teaching here, I believe. He is saying to his disciples through this visual that you're spiritually deaf, you're spiritually blind, and I want you to see and I want you to hear. This leads to our third point. And that is the men that Jesus was equipping. And the necessity of them to hear and to see. If you've been studying Mark with us these last uh, months, you'll, you'll know that the disciples have not been real sharp, have they? I mean, you know, you can give a report card. <laughs> I mean, we kind of actually look down at them a little bit and say, you know, guys... And in the recent chapters up to now where we're at, there's been some strong words, their hearts were hard, it says. They didn't make the connections. I mean, I really struggled with this text today because they just saw Jesus feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Why is it so hard for you to figure out that 4,000 might not be too hard with seven loaves, you know? But they don't get it. 
I mean, he even asked the same questions. How many loaves do you have? But they're stuck on, where are we going to go and buy food for the, you know? They don't get it. Also, think about in, on the Sea of Galilee. We've seen three times so far now that they've been on the Sea of Galilee with Jesus. You remember how Jesus calmed the storm for the first, the first time? Why, why are they so afraid the second time? Like, why would they, and Jesus is with them. Why, why are they so afraid? Why don't they get it? Why is it that they've seen Jesus heal evil, take evil spirits away from people and make them whole? And, and heal crippled people, blind people, and deaf people. And, you know, he, they've seen it all. And yet he still says, you're, you're not getting it. And so, just like Jesus got alone with the deaf man, and just like he got alone with the blind man, Jesus gets alone with the disciples. You'll notice it in chapter 8, verse 13, that Jesus dismisses the crowd... He gets into the boat with the disciples and they start crossing the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had just had a confrontation with the Pharisees. They had been looking for another sign. I'm thinking to myself, what kind of sign are you looking for? The guy's done everything. He's raised the dead. He's made sick people well. He's cast out demons. What do you want? And, he, and, and so Jesus, with that confrontation in his mind, he says to the disciples, you'll notice in verse 15, be careful, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And uh, Jesus was simply stating that there's a, the Old Testament had, uh, uh, the, the idea of yeast in the Old Testament was an evil influence that permeated the whole lump eh, of dough. And what did, what did Herod and the Pharisees have in common? Not much, except that they wanted Jesus to jump hoops make miracles, do signs. And so Jesus says, watch out for these kind. And they don't get it. So they're thinking, like I can just picture this, they're at the back of the boat, <laughs> and they're saying, what is he talking about? I don't know. He's, he's angry with us because we didn't bring enough bread. We left the seven hampers back there on the shore. I don't know what they're saying. It's something like that, though. They don't get it. And Jesus understands they don't get it, and so he says, why are you arguing about the bread? I wonder if we could just take a moment for, just, just, let's just take a, a moment here. <clears throat> let's, let's pretend in our minds, okay, for a little, little bit, okay? Pencils down, hands on your lap. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so let's just use our imagination for a moment, okay? I want you to imagine that you're in elementary school or high school and you're in your worst class, your worst subject. I mean, I, I have no problem thinking about that one. That's math for me, okay? I'm in my math class in grade 9 with Mr. Plett, okay, in Walkerton District Secondary School. And I want you to imagine what that is for you. Now, I know some of you are acing every course, so you can't relate to the rest of us low-lifers, but try to go with us, Okay. So you're in that class, and you're struggling with understanding something. For me, a math equation. And the teacher comes to your desk. Mr. Plett, many times, came to my desk. It's so embarrassing. Everybody else is watching what's going on. And so he comes to my desk. He, the teacher's at your desk. <clears throat> and he or she has taken pains to, to explain 
to you that math equation, that, that English novel, you know, plot or whatever it was. And you're not getting it. And it doesn't do any good to just tell you the answer. You know, I hate that when people just tell me the answers to the math equation. Well, it doesn't help me. And next tomorrow I'm stuck again. I'm sure that Mr. Plett passed me with 50% a couple of years in a row just to get me out of his <laughs> zone. Now, I want you to be there in your mind with your teacher at your subject with you not understanding and your teacher has explained it over and over again and you're not getting it. And now, in your mind, with your imagination, I want you to look up at the face of your teacher and take a look at that face of perplexed frustration. Why aren't you getting this? That is the face of Jesus in chapter 8. Okay? Take a look at verse 17. He says, Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I... When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? I can just see Mr. Platt looking at me. Do you still not understand? I don't believe that Jesus says by accident, do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear. He says it because he is earnest that they awaken to his power and reality as the Lord of all. He has just healed a deaf and mute man, and he wants them to see that they are spiritually deaf and mute. He is about to heal a, spiritually, a blind man, and, they, and Jesus wants his disciples to see that they're spiritually blind to him. And so instead of just telling them like he did here, he he actually had dramatized it with two miracles, one at the beginning and one at the end. They had to have a visual, you see. I got, last week when, the, when uh, the youth group got back from Briarcrest, they were at Youthquake. And I was speaking with one of them, actually two of them, or three of them shared with me the same thing. What's the most powerful thing? It wasn't the speaker. It was a drama that they received, uh, that they saw of dancers that was communicating a message and that was a powerful, powerful moment, weeping moment for some of them. Because it, it, was, it was the message in, in drama form, but it, it touched their hearts. That's what Jesus is doing. He's trying to convey to them in, in a drama form. Why do we gather around the Lord's table and take little pieces of bread and a cup? Why don't, I mean, we, we talk about the death of Jesus all the time. Why is it it's so necessary, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me? Because it's a drama. Because it's a visual. Because you see the bread and you understand Jesus is the bread of life. And you see the cup and you realize Jesus did shed his blood. And why do we have baptism? I mean, why don't we just say, hey, you believe in Christ? You turned from sin? Are you walking with him now? Okay, that's good enough for us. Thank you. Welcome to the family. Why do we go to lakes and rivers and baptismal tanks and, and say, 
baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a drama. It's a visual. It's death and burial and resurrection and new life. We need to see that. Jesus wanted them to see it. It's not surprising that in the very next passage we're going to look at, they get it. They get it. He's part of it. And so, what is it that they were supposed to get? You're probably wondering, like me, well, what does the 12 baskets mean? (laughs) What do the 7 baskets mean? I scratched my head on this one a few times. Notice that the disciples had no trouble with the numbers. Churches are good at numbers, too. Started with the disciples. We counted the 12 baskets. We counted the 7 baskets. We count how many people come to our church services. We count how much goes on the offering plate. Are we good at going deeper? And so, I think in answer to verse 21, do you still not understand... I don't think we can expect too much from the disciples here. I think that, in fact, Jesus is looking for a simple answer from them and a deeper answer from us through Mark. I think he's looking for a simple answer from from them. He's looking for them simply to acknowledge his true identity and his true power and start trusting in him that way. It was far too early for them to understand this idea that Jesus is the one loaf that will be divided and that that he is the bread of life for the Jews and the Gentiles. I think it was too early for them to understand that that the 12 baskets were for the Jewish nations and that seven was for them. Maybe they understood some of that. I'm not sure. You remember, it wasn't until Acts chapter 10 when Peter gets it about the Gentiles being offered the free grace of salvation through Christ as well at the house of Cornelius. So I'm not sure if they're getting this yet about the Gentiles. But he certainly wants them to get the understanding that he is the Messiah. He is the miracle-working king of Israel. He's come to inaugurate a kingdom. And it involves them acknowledging who he is. And this is the first stage of their spiritual hearing and the first stage of their spiritual sight. I wonder if Jesus is wanting somebody here this morning to take that first step as well of spiritual hearing and spiritual sight where you can argue all you want about the physical realms. You can see what God's doing or what's going on in the physical realm. But maybe God's asking someone here this morning to take the first step or another step to say... Jesus, I'm not hearing you and I'm not seeing you. Just like the, the deaf man and the blind man and need others to bring him to him. Maybe you need help. Maybe you need Jesus to come along and open your ears so you'll hear spiritually. Or open your mouth so you'll speak for him. Or open your eyes so that you'll see him. You see, you don't, you don't get there in the flesh. You don't get there in the power of your own strength. You need Jesus to open your ears. There's so much more for you to know about him, experience from him, and you need him to open your eyes. You know, these disciples have been walking with Jesus for a long time already. They would have been seen as followers of Christ, just like we are seen as followers of Christ. They needed their eyes open 
and their ears opened. They had already been sent on a mission trip for, with, with Jesus. They sent them out two by two. They cast out demons. They healed the sick. They, they preached the gospel. And yet at this stage of the game, Jesus says, you're still not hearing. You're still not seeing. Does that apply to you? What is it in, in your life that would make Jesus sigh deeply like he does in this text a few times? <sighs> Martha, Martha. Something like that, except your name. What is it that makes him sigh deeply? What is it that makes him have the face of your teacher that looks on you and is frustrated that you still don't get? What is it in your life? I want you to think about that. You know, there's a story, and I don't know what part is myth and what part is truth, but the story, you know, the nickname the guy was given was Blondin. It's not his real name, but in the 1800s, this man was well known for walking a tightrope walk across Niagara Falls, a thousand feet of cable, a 60-foot dip in the middle of that 500 feet, of that thousand feet of cable. And the story is told that in 1859, he did his first trip. He got so good at it, Bands were on both sides of the Niagara Gorge playing. And at one point, it says that he went across back and forth with the pole. Then he did it without the pole. Then he did it with a wheelbarrow that had no tire. You know, then he did it, I don't know if I believe this one, he did it with a wheelbarrow full of cement. Again, I'm not sure where myth starts and, you know, but the point is that at the end of the story apparently what he did was he said how many believe I can do it with someone on my shoulders by this time the crowd is enthused they believe he could do anything so they say yeah and then he said okay you come with me do you really believe apparently again I'm not sure if it's true or not but his manager said he would go and he took him on his back there and back the point is that you've seen, you've seen Jesus do things for other people. You've witnessed him. You've known about Jesus. And what Jesus is always asking is, what's your spiritual hearing? What's your spiritual sight? Individually, he wants you to get it. And so as we conclude our, with a song, and as we have the worship team come, the, the thing I want you to think on as we conclude is, is what is it that Jesus wants me to get? What is it that, what's the next step I need to have? How do I need him to open my ears and open my mouth and open my eyes? So make this last song a time of prayer and, and reflection. Amen.